Welcome. I'm Connor Beaton, and this is the Man Talk Show, training for men and answers for women. Joining me today is Caduce, and Caduce is a colleague of mine, friend of mine, and he is a former TV host, speaker, coach originally from Canada, and he originally hosted the hit show TRL, which was on MTV, uh, which led to a nomination for Favorite TV Personality at the Teen Choice Awards. Uh, Caduce's extensive hosting experience includes shows like Duets on ABC and The Insider on CBS. Uh, he is also the former f- uh, co-founder of Camera Ready, in which he shares his passions for bringing out the best in people long after the camera lights have dimmed. Uh, so Caduce is joining me today, not necessarily to talk so much about uh, being on TV or being in front of a camera, um, but actually sort of sits in front of the camera and the microphone uh, with me today, and we dive into um, the challenges of going through divorce, the challenges of going through a breakup and diving into his experience firsthand uh, of going through that through that place and through that space in his life, but also being able to talk about the mental health challenges that coincided with that. Uh, Caduce shares some of his personal story in dealing with the, with the breakup, with his recent divorce with his partner, and talks about not only some of the challenges that led him down uh, into some depression, into a lot of anxiety and panic attacks, but also how he started to turn things around and pull himself out of a very uh, dark place. And so this episode is a lot about uh, the human experience of the impact of breakups, the impact of divorce, which all of us have been through at some point in our life. Most, Almost all of us, I would assume, have gone through some form of really hard breakup. And we all know what that's like. And this is a really great episode and some really great insight into how you can support either yourself or the people in your life that are dealing with depression, that are dealing with anxiety, or that are going through a really challenging time, whether it's a divorce or a breakup, relational challenge or something uh, in their life where they have been transitioned out of a specific space like a job or relationship. So I'm going to bring him on here just in a second, but just a quick reminder, uh, Vienna and I have a retreat coming up in April, early April, that's going to be uh, in New York, and we are looking for a few men to fill up the spots. We're almost completely full, but we do have room for two or three more men, so if you're interested in that, please head on over to newyorkcouplescounseling.com or my website, connorbeaton.com, to learn more about that. And we have one more spot left for the men's weekend. So guys, if you're looking to do some deep work and to join us, you have two options, one co-ed and one men only. Uh, So head on over to ConnorBeaton.com and check that out soon. So that's it for the announcements for today. Um, And without any further delay, please welcome Caduce. All right, my friend. Mm. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to the Man Talk Show. And uh, yeah, I mean, I have heard about you uh, I think we've been running in the same circles for a while, but it's a it's a pleasure to have you on the show mm. and sitting in front of me in my living room, which is even more e- even more uh, wonderful. So yeah, it's a beautiful space, by the way. Thank you, thank you. We we have a tree. Yeah, I don't know how <laughs> it lives. Yeah, it's uh, it get it gathers sunlight from the giant windows. But uh, <laughs> I've been thinking about moving it over. We should move it over here. We should have done like between one, you know, be, <laughs> between, like between one two kind of fern. Yeah, I don't even know what kind of tree that is. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's not two ferns. It's just one tree. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's start at the beginning. Let's start with a defining moment, which I start with all my guests. Uh, so tell us a story about a defining moment that made you who you are today. <laughs> Oh, that's easy because I just came off of the most gnarly year of my life. And I would say that the moment that really stood out and had me wake up to how things had taken some turns was the night where I couldn't sleep. And I thought, maybe let's smoke some indigo weed, take the edge off and help me sleep. I smoked this weed and within half a second, I fainted and fell on my head. Oh, man. And I didn't black out, but I did have a bit of a disoriented feeling. I remember peeling myself off the floor and just having the thought, how did I get here? And then I heard my wife in the next room yelling and screaming, honey, honey, are you okay? Because it woke her up. The thud from my head hitting the floor woke her up. So that was a moment where I realized that something needed to change. Mm. Yeah, I'd been burning the candle at both ends. 
and burning down everything else. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it really was not sustainable in that moment. It was definitely the defining moment where I realized I needed to get help. So back us up a little bit into what sort of led to that, what led to that moment? Like you, you talked about burning the candle at both ends, which I think so many people in our modern culture and our mm -hmm. current culture can identify with. What was burning the candle at both ends for you? For me, it was taking on three major life changes within a year and a half. So deciding to get married, start a business with my wife and move to New York City. It's kind of suicidal, right? That's a lot. Yeah, that's, that's an intense amount. <laughs> I've always been pretty ambitious and having started my career as a VJ on MTV set the bar pretty high. So I think I was just looking to top myself in some ways and yeah. present more challenges. But no, truly, I felt inspired and I felt like I could manage it. I felt like so many people our age, a little bit of invincibility. Mm. And I'd had a track record to prove it. I had a really blessed life. And so I really felt like I could go there or go for it. And I had a partner who was just as resilient and strong and uh, vision motivated. And so there we were in the throes of it. And it was a lot. I mean, it was not only starting a business, but starting a training company that was endeavoring to take on the number one fear most people have, which is public speaking, mm -hmm. and compound that with the camera being on. And that's camera ready. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot. That is a lot. That is a lot. All right. So you fast forward to this moment. You've taken on all of these uh, all these pieces. You get married. You start a company with your partner. First off, I want to just want to pause there because I think that's something that's actually happening quite a bit more uh, in our, again, in our, in our current society is that like couples are starting to work together more and more, right. you know, I blame and, Beyonce and Jay-Z. Yeah. Right. It's like, they're really, they set the bar high. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they really set the bar high. Uh, but what was that like for you? Did it change the, the dynamic and like, what was the controversy? Was the conflict like, was it smooth sailing? Well, from the inception of our relationship, I fantasized about that. I thought, how awesome would it be to be with somebody who's as excited and passionate and talented at mm -hmm. creating transformation for people and self-development as me? And so I found Carmina to be that match. And so I thought it would be perfect. I thought we could talk shop all day. <laughs> I mean, I was OCD about this work because it changed my life. I went to a workshop after having a couple projects not work out and it did way more than get my career back on track. It completely shifted how I was showing up in relationships and how I was able to be with myself and actually love myself for the first time and not turn from my thoughts whenever it was quiet and distract myself with clubs and all sorts of stuff. So it was really powerful work. And so I really felt called to pay it forward and become a facilitator of that work and thought this is going to require a very big shift in lifestyle and I would love to have a partner in that. And so she fit the bill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what was it like once you guys started to work together? Was that something that was she was passionate about as well? Or Yeah, I think she also had the same vision that I think a lot of people do. This whole power couple dynamic. It's very egoic, but yeah. we do have egos. And yeah. it's pretty inescapable. And so I think we both had that idea. And so sometimes ideas don't exactly play out the way we hope they do. And we had to play the game to find out. Nice. I love that that uh, concept of like the power couple, right? I think a lot of people are out there trying to emulate what they see in the Jay-Z's and the Beyonce's of the world and, uh, you know, the Brad Pitt's and Angelina Jolie's. And so so what was it like, you know, at the end of the day for you guys, for yeah. you specifically? You've had to ask that question twice over. You can tell I'm really avoiding it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to keep coming back to I it. I mean, the reality, it. yeah, it was really the crux of why our relationship went sideways mm. was it exposed that two alphas have a really hard time mm -hmm. in working relationship and romantic. Mm -hmm. I think there needs to be a polarity like Esther Perel talks about for there to be a spark on the romantic side and for there to be, I think, a fluid collaborative relationship. Somebody's got to give. Somebody's got to relent their point of view. And I think we both had such strong points of view on just about everything we ever created in Camera Ready. And it can be a great thing, mm -hmm. but I think we didn't have the team around us to soften that, to provide a, another perspective that would give us some breath from our own butting of heads sometimes. So mm. the, the irony is that individually, there's nothing wrong with either of us, but I think as a partnership, it had a lot of challenges. Mm. And I think we both were so committed to the vision 
that we were actually rationalizing things to the point of turning shit into sugar. Mm. Cause if I'm really being honest, we had so many arguments behind the scenes, we would always shake it off mm. and go out there and facilitate and serve the people. But there would be moments where we were quitting behind the scenes. We were at each other's throats. It was like, not only were we not a partnership, a couple, but it was like, we didn't even respect each other in the moment. Mm. So that was really tough. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's not only challenging, obviously like individually, but it, I would imagine it starts to really take its toll on the relationship, which is, I mean, Vienna and I have done a good amount of work together. And I think like when we, like we kind of did a very similar thing, we got married and we had our first course come out like immediately after, like mm. literally, uh, I think a month after we got married. Mm. And that was probably the most challenging time in our relationship. Cause not only we were, you know, we're newly married. Yeah. We're like bringing on this, this uh, birthing this new course into the world. But the course is about relationships, right? It's mm. like how to do relationships properly. Uh, but we were also, you know, working quite a bit. And so it's taxing, right? It mm. takes its toll on the relationship. But I think one of the things that you and I talked about before we even came on is this idea of when you are the face of something, it feels like there's even more pressure there to sort of continue to smile, right? Like you, mm -hmm. like you were saying, and continue to sort of put this air on of okayness mm -hmm. can you kind of speak to that part and the toll that started to take on you because i would imagine played out over time that starts to take a very serious emotional toll mental toll yeah and i think that i made up that i needed to be this poster boy for camera ready that i needed to always have an air of confidence and effectiveness mm. and i mean the whole focus of camera ready was more so being authentic than anything else. And yet, of course, sometimes we teach what we most get to learn. Mm -hmm. And so I did feel like on some level, there was a bit of pageantry going on. It was, it was this, this feeling of needing to keep up with the Joneses and needing to be an example of what it is that we were selling people. Mm. And so as I was not feeling all together, enjoy all the time in my relationship. I, I did rationalize it. I did think that on some level, I didn't know how to do relationship. I'd grown up seeing my parents completely dysfunctional, very abusive relationship. So I didn't really have a point of reference within my own home for what it was to be in relationship. So of course, as Carmina and I's relationship was having some challenges, I didn't know how to distinguish what was normal from what was a red flag mm. and yeah, time it just, to, just seemed like a normal environment to be in. Yeah. Yeah, it did. And so there's a lot of moments that anybody else who would have had a reference point for a healthy relationship would have used that moment to get therapy, mm. you know, get some coaching or even just turn to friends and be like, what do you think about this? Yeah. But we did none of the above and we just kept focusing on serving the people. I mean, mostly our relationship was very much about serving our clients. And so instead of going to watch a movie, instead of just relaxing, rub each other, rubbing each other's feet, we would probably be talking about our next training. I like that you just looked directly over at the couch where I rub my wife's feet. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and, and she rubs my shoulders after a long, long ass day. <laughs> I'm glad you that guys have that. That's a beautiful thing. And that's, that was really good. That's really, I mean, that's, that's, that's it. I mean, if a relationship can have balance, yeah, then it can live. But it is challenging. So what, what would you say to, you know, maybe yourself or other couples that are in that dynamic that are working together or that are just the alphas, like the two alphas? Because I think that's, that's a very real thing, right? Like mm -hmm. you have like two power personalities, two big personalities in a relationship. What, what did you learn? What did you learn about that? I learned that it's way more important to listen than to speak. And if someone feels really passionately about something, chances are it's worth at least exploring. Mm. And I remember hearing a Ron Howard interview and he talked about his approach as a filmmaker and a director on set and how if anybody in his crew came up to him and had the conviction to pitch him an idea and he saw that fire in them, he'd give it a try, <laughs> regardless of whether he agreed with it or not. And obviously that didn't stick and I didn't really go with it, but... um that's definitely something that I, I learned the hard way because there was a lot of moments where Carmina would have great ideas 
but I would have another idea and we'd either argue about it to the point where neither of us wanted to even do the damn thing or we would end up conceding one way or another. Somebody would have a, a play on what they wanted to do and then the other would sit there kind of begrudgingly dealing with that iteration of it. But yeah, the big thing I've realized is that it's just, it's way more important to focus on the relationship than any output from it. Mm. And I think we were just so focused on the output from our relationship and not enough on the relationship. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit more? I feel like no. that concept right there is so powerful. Mm. And, you know, I think for a lot of people that are in relationships right now, it can be challenging because we, you know, we live in a culture that's very much performance-based, that's mm -hmm. results-based, that's, you know, you are, your worth is dependent on what you produce. Yeah. Right. And and if you're a couple that are high, high performers, high producers, mm -hmm. results-oriented, that can take precedence over the relationship itself. So maybe if you can just dig a little bit into that and the impact on maybe you personally of what it was like to just constantly like be driving and trying to produce over sort of prioritizing the relationship. Well, from a macro perspective, we really do prioritize what people are doing rather than who they are like mm. beyond a resume. Who is this person moment to moment? Are they kind? Are they funny? You know, the bottom line is not the most important thing. And so it's a lesson we just keep learning over and over and over again as a culture. It's like we're we're collectively bought into something that is capitalistic in nature and not the way we naturally showed up here. We yeah. naturally showed up without any industry. And we just decided that we were not enough at some point and we needed to produce and produce and produce. And now we're so developed, right? We have these these phones and all these apps and what does it amount to? I mean, it's wild how disconnected I see people mm -hmm. at a dinner together looking at their phones. And I'm guilty of it too. And so it's really something to, to recognize that rat race and to be so in the rat race that I didn't even realize I was in the rat race. It was like the equivalent of being a fish in the ocean and not knowing that there was water around me. It just was all encompassing. I was so fixated on this purpose, on this big vision to empower the world's leaders to be more authentic and effective and inspiring for their people. And meanwhile, I was killing myself slowly but surely. I was bootstrapping the thing with my own money. The business model was not set up for sustainability because I was like a martyr thinking about them, our clients, over what was going to work for the bottom line to feed myself mm -hmm. and our family. And so unnecessarily, there I am burying myself, serving the people, getting great results for them. I mean, we have people that are New York Times bestsellers now. We have people that have broken records in every area. So from that standpoint, the business worked. From every other standpoint, like my own well-being, it didn't. So... It's wild just how I was named after a martyr and then I lived into the name. <laughs> yeah, tell me more about that. So what? where does your name actually come from and what's the story behind that, just briefly? Yeah, it was a guy who was really inspired by the uh, first prophet of the Baha'i faith, a guy named Baha'u'llah. So Caduce was uh, his first follower. And so he was revered by everybody else who then followed. And uh, in the midst of a war, he put himself into a situation where he killed, he got killed. And I don't know all the details of it, honestly, um, was not raised within the faith that inspired the naming of my name. It's ironic. My mom named me after this guy Caduce, who's a hero of the Baha'i faith. And then a couple of years later, she decided she wasn't really resonating with the Baha'i <laughs> faith, but the name stuck. And so, I mean, it means a man of peace. And so it's a beautiful thing to, to live into and to, sometimes yeah. be adjacent to well thanks for thanks for taking a detour there yeah so bring us back to this moment so you smoke a little bit of indica yeah you're sort of in this in this peak space where it sounds like uh just a shit ton of stuff is going on there's a lot emotionally happening mentally there's a lot going on yeah you're tapped out love physically. the sirens right now yeah usually can't so symbolic yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> I mean, exactly really, that's like, what it felt like though that 
those sirens are basically the state that I was in. Mm. It felt like I was in a burning building. Essentially, my life was burning around me, and yet it was a blind spot to me. Mm. And so my well-being was suffering. I was, I was barely sleeping because we had a training coming up. And I'm the rainmaker in the company. I'm the one that gets people through the doors primarily. Mm -hmm. And so I'm busy on these calls, enrolling these people who more often than not are the ones that are inspiring people into their programs. And so that's a conversation that requires a certain level of proficiency, right? And so that's one layer of it. We're currently leading a program that's a very high ticket program. People are expecting major transformation, leading that as well also dealing with all the administration, the business aspects. And I'm in way over my head because I've never run a company before. Hmm. So all of that happening in the midst of also having a wife who wants a kid and deserves a kid. Meanwhile, I'm looking at the PNL. I'm looking at my bank account. You know, startup life, it's no joke. No. And so I'm really entertaining having a child come into this, more pressure. So it was a very intense situation for me. And of course, I'm doing some things to take care of myself. I'm doing hot yoga every morning. I'm eating whenever my wife makes a point of bringing me a meal. I mean, that's how I was, I was in it. I was so focused. It's like LeBron James in the fourth quarter, you know, just <laughs> looking at the basket and just doing whatever it takes to get there. And meanwhile, forgetting to feed myself. And so if it wasn't for my wife, sometimes I wouldn't eat and just wild levels of, of commitment and yet not healthy, not healthy. So yeah, that's, that's the picture. What would you say your mental health was like during that space? Because I feel like it's such a taxing thing. Like I've, I've been there before where it seems like every faucet of life is just infringing on your mental space, mm-hmm. you know, and it can feel so taxing. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you cope with that? Like how, how, what, what strategies were you trying to deploy or were you just straight survival mode? Well, I think at first I thought yoga would do it. And so I did that. And then I unconsciously picked up a weed habit. Mm. And so I was smoking a lot of weed. And I rationalized it because I had hosted a show about weed entrepreneurs the year prior. And I noticed that a lot of these entrepreneurs were still functioning on a really high level. So I surmised, based on my experience with that, that weed is actually an optimizer Mm. and that we've had it confused all this time that stoners were just people that didn't know how to dose themselves properly, Mm. but done in a microdose mindful way that we could actually support. And it did to some extent. I experienced flow state on a very regular basis, but there was also an unconscious addiction I was developing. And then what happened with my dog getting killed in front of me by a bigger dog was probably another sign that things were going off the rails. You know, sometimes I believe that the, the universe, God, Uh, creates opportunities for us to wake up. And sometimes it's a whisper. And then if we don't listen to it, it becomes a megaphone. And sometimes it becomes a dog dying in front of you. Mm -hmm. So that was a situation that was traumatic. And I was so in my alpha that I didn't even slow down enough to recognize it as trauma. I didn't treat myself as someone who would just witness his best friend get killed by a bigger dog in front of him. I just went right to work. There was a training the very next week that I was leading. So some people were saying, that was really traumatic. Do you want to take take some time off? Maybe go for a retreat. And I was like, I think I'm good. I'm good. And these people get to be trained, Mm -hmm. you know? So the mission became more important than me. (laughs) And um, I didn't cope with it well. I, I had many, many times in the training room where I felt like my system was on overload. Uh, my adrenals were probably screaming at the top of their lungs before they blew out. I sat with an integrative doctor after doing a full blood panel. And she says, I've never seen a system so burnt out. Hmm. So yeah, I didn't cope with it well. Mm -hmm. So you have that moment, pass out on the floor. So to take a, you know, take a hit there. She comes in, you okay? Mm -hmm. What starts to happen after that? Like how how do you start to shift? You, you know, clearly this was like a sign, this yeah. sort of like big red flag of like, Oh shit, maybe I'm burning, you know, the, the candle at both ends. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely burning myself out. I can't keep this up. What starts to happen in your mind after that moment of collapse and, and what shifts did you start to make? Well, immediately I wondered what happened to my head. I think, okay, that was a pretty serious fall. And I actually had a uh, swelling 
right there, the frontal lobe. That's where the executive functions are. Yeah. So I'm a guy that requires my mind. I mean, I'm coaching people on the most important things in their life. And so I, I need my brain. And so I go into concern about my brain function. And so we go to the ER, I get a CAT scan and they didn't see any internal bleeding. So they assured me that at most it's a mild concussion. But what started happening was I was experiencing some really wild symptoms. And so my insomnia spiked, it got even worse. I wasn't even able to sleep. So before it was insomnia in the way that I would fall asleep, but then wake up only an hour after. Now it became a situation where I felt like I was in a burning building. I would lay there in fight or flight mode. It was as if I was in Braveheart without a sword hmm. laying there. And so that started happening coupled with really, really big dips in mood and energy throughout the day as I'm expected to perform at a high level and also experience panic attacks, crazy panic attacks for no reason. And so come to find out these are symptoms of post-traumatic stress, uh, TBI, you know, traumatic brain injury. And so all this was happening and I, I wasn't actually having someone walk me through what this was. So it, for me, it just it almost felt like a spiritual crisis. It felt like I was collapsing and I didn't quite know why. Mm. I mean, I had the hunch that falling on my head had something to do with it. But then I'm wondering, okay, so how do I recover? So I start looking up, researching head injury. That's a rabbit hole that would yeah, drive any man insane. <laughs> that's, a, that's a huge black hole right there. Yeah, it yeah. was not encouraging. Yeah. And um, so I started to develop a pretty acute depression. I started thinking that I just did irreparable damage to my brain. I would never function the same again. And for someone like me, who's been type A since day one and achieved at a really high level, been you know, in some of the biggest shows in the world and being able to train people like I've been able to train them, the prospect of basically being like a vegetable was hell on earth. Mm -hmm. And so that's where my mind went. Pretty much every day I would obsess about how fucked up I was. And so I uh, spun out pretty hard. I uh, wasn't able to sleep for months. And that's when we got a psychologist. That psychologist diagnosed me with PTSD, recommended I come out to San Francisco for ketamine-assisted therapy, and got me with a psychiatrist. That psychiatrist prescribed me some pretty intense stuff. And pill after pill, none of them worked. And so it was really, really challenging. Mm -hmm. And that's when some really intense suicidal thoughts came, because I thought, I can't live like this. Mm-hmm. Every day was more and more dark, miserable, and I was not functioning. Uh, I was almost an invalid. I was hardly able to have conversations. And I mean, I'm a communicator. I'm, I thrive with people. And I started to feel completely inadequate around people. Mm. And I started to isolate myself. And I went into pretty deep seclusion. And then I stopped going to therapy because I didn't see progress there. And that's when I started to look in the kitchen for a knife that could just end the pain. Mm -hmm. And I had a conversation with somebody in my family where I, I shared what I was thinking about. And that's when, you know, they hit the red button. My mom flew down the next day from Vancouver Island. She's retired. She's in her 60s. She normally spends the day painting. And she hopped on the next flight, came down like a hero, peeled me off the ground. I was in the fetal position. I was barely leaving the place. I was ordering pizza all day. I was slowly killing myself because I started to feel like, I don't know how I'm going to kill myself. The more research I did about it, the more I realized it's actually really hard to kill yourself. And so my mom came down and got me on a flight and we flew back to her place in Vancouver Island. And that made it worse in a way because there I am 39 years old in my mom's basement. And it's starting to get around. I'm starting to get a lot of calls from people wondering about how I'm doing. So I start to think about how my reputation is being affected. And as somebody who's a quote unquote leader yeah. <laughs> and how I can't even take care of myself at this point, the shame was really, really intense, really intense. I would spend all day thinking about and speculating about what people must be saying and just wondering how I can end it. 
And so I, I literally went into research mode as if I had like an exam about suicide. And I spent weeks looking up different methods. And then it got to a point where I was actually about to do it. I was in my mom's basement and I got rope. I put it around my neck. I set it up on the ceiling and I came very close. I wrote a suicide note and left it on the bed. And I had just enough humanity still left in me to snap out of it and take the rope off my neck and just put one foot in front of the other. And I told my mom I was about to kill myself. And that's when she freaked out. We went to the ER. And sure enough, they prescribed me more sleeping pills, more sedatives. So at that point, I was on four different sedatives and still wasn't sleeping. And so I, uh, I was starting to slip into madness. I mean, anyone that's going to kill themselves like that in their mom's basement is probably already mad, but it, it just got worse and worse and worse. Uh, and then um, Carmina found out about the attempt or the almost attempt. And then she flew out from New York. She was just wrapping up our life in New York and flew out. And um, so I had my wife, my mom on suicide watch. And um, yeah, yeah, there was a lot of moments where if it weren't for them, I wouldn't be here. It's a tough place to find ourselves in, you know, tough yeah. place to find yourself in, especially, you know, after... I think one of the big challenges that a lot of a lot of people have is like, especially when they've had that momentum in their life and then it starts to slip away, mm -hmm. you know, and we want to grasp onto it so tightly because we're like, no, I know what this feels like. And I can't remember who said it or where I even heard the quote, but it was something along the lines of like, suicide is the ultimate form of self-destruction. Mm -hmm. You know, that we, we start to engage in self-destructive thinking or feeling or, you know, behavior, yeah. external behavior. And it, that pattern just leads us further and further down the road, you know. And so first off, I appreciate you talking about it because I think mm -hmm. that it really is one of the, one of the most untalked about things in our culture and our society that mm. so many people have thought about and contemplated um experienced in their life whether it's not it doesn't have to be them it could be someone in their family or mm. one of their friends and it's a really unfortunate thing and it's wild because it really does speak to how it can happen to anybody yeah i mean I've, I've been known to be the happy-go-lucky guy yeah and we're all just a couple choices away from a very different life yeah hundred hundred percent i think you know especially when we we look at people like robin williams and we look at people that are in the in the in the space right mm -hmm. that are in the whether it's a health space or personal development or entertainment or entrepreneurship or even whatever the health space mm -hmm. anyone's susceptible to it and so i, I appreciate you bring that forward mm. what what was like what was part of your work after that because i think for some people that are going down that path they're not they're not really too sure how to sort of prevent the slide like slow down the slide mm -hmm. you know into that pit into that abyss that you're talking about mm -hmm. um so a what did you learn about it mm -hmm. you know in the in the sort of aftermath of all this mm -hmm. what would you say to people that are out there that are dealing with that level of darkness maybe we'll just start there yeah i would say that a big lesson is just how important it is to listen to my own body. Mm. I don't give my, I didn't give my body enough credit for being a gatekeeper of wisdom and a really big indicator about how I was being. And it was telling me all along, very clear, a lot of signs. I just wasn't listening. Mm -hmm. I thought I had ascended. <laughs> I was such a <laughs> spiritual being. I love that but I'm having a human experience. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so it was a real, real wake up call. And, um, yeah, just to check in, just to sit and meditate. I mean, that's something that was a really diligent practice for me. And yet connected to self-love, I was valuing what I was doing for others more than my well being, And so I was not meditating as much, I was constantly rationalizing, chipping away at the things that I know set me up to win. Mm. So it ends up being a lose-lose because then my clients eventually get a watered-down version of who I am and I'm suffering. 
isn't that such a fucked up part of depression mm-hmm. and like suicidal thoughts is that the things that we know that are good for us are the things that somehow our rational mind, which which I think in our modern culture, like we definitely over index the benefits of our rational mind, mm-hmm. you know, and we tell ourselves like it's the be all end all. Yep. And yet it's the thing that when things start to slide in our life, it somehow becomes the voice of why you should fuck shit up even more totally. you know like 100%. you should totally you know smoke that extra joint or drink that entire bottle of johnny walker right. or like you know go fuck that woman or whatever it is that yep. unhealthy thing yep. and yet the rational mind is convincing us to do that yep the so, monkey mind is what i call it yeah the monkey mind yeah okay so i, I just have one more question that i want to yeah. you know sort of start to move feel free to ask move. more if you have yeah, yeah, yeah 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 um i'm curious because i i can hear a lot of my listeners probably listening into your experience and knowing someone in their life that's struggling mm-hmm. and knowing someone that's going through something challenging, whether it's depression or, you know, crippling anxiety or suicidal ideations or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. and having them wonder, like, how do I support that person? Mm-hmm. So for you, when you were going through that, what role was your was your ex-wife playing? Like, were you pushing her away? you know, um, was there something that people could have done to support you more effectively? Mm. Like, how was, how was that experience? I think it was really tough because everybody in my life was used to me being a certain way. I'm I'm used to being the upholder Mm -hmm. of most of the people around me. And so all of a sudden they were tasked with upholding me. And it's this role reversal that I think was really jarring for most everybody. And I think that I was in such a state. I had allowed it to get to a point where we were in crisis. So it was constantly a panicked, strained situation. So I think that the biggest thing that I could recommend is first and foremost, take care of the state. So if if I'm in fight or flight, pretty much nothing you say to me is going to get through and have any impact because my system it's the equivalent of a burning building around me. And so I'm not going to compute and really be able to implement any advice that I get. And so, yeah, it's it's a saying that high emotion, low meaning making. Mm. So can we tend to the emotion first? And so whether that's going out to the beach and just looking at the ocean and getting a back rub before we have a conversation about what's going on, I remember one of the most dramatic scenes in this whole thing was when I was on the northern part of Vancouver Island. And it got to a point where I started to speculate about the root of this disease. Mm. And I started to put the relationship on the table and really question whether there was alignment in the relationship if I was feeling no peace, even after taking the work away. New York City. Some people were speculating it's New York so intense. Of course, you had burnout. New York's big bad New York City. Please. <laughs> I love that people blame it on entire cities. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, please. It's totally that city. It's like, no, it's who you are in that city. Yeah. 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 And so all these other factors have been now taken away. And it's just me, my wife, my mom, my stepdad. And so then I looked at the relationship with my wife and my uncle awesome man. He had dealt with a stroke recently, about two years ago, barely able to speak, but saying a lot Mm -hmm. with his heart, his soul, his eyes were piercing. And he was just saying to me, he said, if it's a maybe, it's probably a no. And I just could not bring myself to that conclusion after this woman stood by my side and went through hell and back. She dealt with a lot I would not be here if it weren't for her. There was a night when we were leading a retreat in Costa Rica. And I decided a couple of days prior to get off the meds cold turkey. And of course, I didn't think about some of the side effects of that. And one of them is intense suicidality. And so there I was in Costa Rica, having completed this retreat, leading a retreat in that state. Talk about sacrifice, unnecessary martyrdom. And so there I am. At 2 a.m., the rain is falling down on our villa in Costa Rica. It was like a scene from a movie. And I snapped. 
I snapped and I was like, where are those pills? I'm going to have all of them. And she hid them from me. And I was committed. If I'd have gotten those pills, I would have done it. And she stood beside me and would not let me get those pills. I was almost going to shove her out of the way. I would not lay a hand on her, but I was almost going to do it. And she stood firm. So when the prospect of divorcing her came up, I was really, really backed up about it. I didn't know what to make of that. Even though I knew, I knew in my heart that that was it. I um, told my uncle this and he said, well, you know. And when I couldn't bring myself to it, he drove me out to the ocean and he just dropped me off. He said, be with the ocean. (laughs) Best thing he could have done for me. And I was just there with my own thoughts and my own feelings and just being with the waves crashing. And and, uh, I think when things got that still and that quiet, I could actually hear my own wisdom beyond the well-intended advice. And uh, that's when I started to think clearly and realize that it was, it was the marriage. Yeah. Appreciate you sharing that, man. Mm. This, I know it's a challenging situation to be in. It's tough, but you know, I think it, it is, it is what people, you know, I think so many people could need to hear, Mm. you know, in the sense that it's so hard to choose to walk away from someone when they have been there for us through our hardest times, you know, when they've been our salvation, yeah. when they've carried the save, you know, the savior, right? Yeah. Like the, the person that's always that person for other people, yeah. you know, the helper, yeah. it's hard to walk away from that. Yeah. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. What, um, what did the ocean tell you? Your time at the ocean. <laughs> uh, the ocean. What did it tell me? If, well, waves, if waves could speak, you know, they would. <laughs> they'd have all so many of our stories just wrapped up in them. Yeah, yeah. Well, it told me that there's more life to live. Yeah, the life was worth living, and that that I knew. You know, it's it just it, it was like this space of reflection. Literally, the water was reflecting the moonlight. You know, and it it was like a mirror. It's like, it was saying, you're going to doctors, you're going to psychologists, you're going to psychiatrists. You're asking all the people around you for input. You know, yeah. why are you acting like you don't know? Yeah. You're the one that people come to for advice most of the time. Yeah. And you're acting like you don't know. (laughs) That's what it said to me. It's almost like reclaiming intuitional sanity. Yeah. You know, it's like we, I find that so many people ignore that voice. Mm. You know, it's like, it's the, it is the easiest and hardest thing to ignore, mm-hmm. you know, cause there's consequences when we, when we don't listen to it. Big time. Yeah. yeah that's what I was living. I mean, it was one big consequence, yeah. you know, because the, the fact is that as soon as I made the decision, it took a amazing couples therapist to navigate us being in that possibility when I finally came to that clarity and that conviction that night, I slept for the first time in months Hmm. and I've been feeling peace and more peace and more peace every day after. And, And the thing is in situations like this, typically somebody is supposed to be wrong Hmm. in divorce. You're considered a failed marriage and somebody has got to be the villain right? Your circle of friends take sides. Yeah. But what if it's just honest? What if nobody was wrong and it just wasn't a fit after all? Then what? Yeah. End of story. <laughs> yeah. You know, like just period. It's just yeah. like, what if no one's wrong? No one's at fault for it. It just wasn't right. Period. Yeah. That's you it. Know? That's it. And you, and you had served each other in, in the way that you'd meant to, because it yeah. sounds like that relationship, while it wasn't a good fit, was a, a conduit, was a vehicle for you to claim a deeper sense of knowing, yep. you know, of inner peace. Yep. And I think that is the difference between what I hear you almost describing. It's like the a very visceral, real example of the difference between understanding something 
and really knowing something, yeah. you know, because I'm sure that you probably had reasons along the way of like why the relationship wasn't right or wasn't a good mm -hmm. fit or, you know, the two of you could part, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But it's different to find ourselves at a, at a place of truly knowing, right? Yeah. I think one of my favorite philosophers, Alan Watts, mm. said belief clings and faith allows. Mm. And there are four words that just unequivocally have changed my life, mm. you know? Because like, am I trying to believe right now? Mm -hmm. Am I trying to believe that this, you know, working relationship or that this intimate relationship or that this client is, you know, like whatever it is, am I trying to believe that this is right? Mm -hmm. Or do I just know, you know, mm -hmm. do I have faith? Cause I know mm -hmm. in intuitionally that I just know in my gut that it's, that's right. Yep. And it's, and maybe it's just right for right now, but it's mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with that rationalizing monkey mind. Yeah. We put so much importance on the intellect, but this is actually the smartest brain. Yeah. I'm pointing to my gut for yeah. all those who are just listening. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite quotes of all time is Einstein. He said, uh, the rational mind is a faithful servant and the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. Mm. And we have created a culture that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. And it's like, there's one of the most brilliant rational minds of all time, mm. you know, <laughs> yeah. of like all freaking time yep. saying like, Hey, you know, maybe this thing isn't all that it's made out to be. Yeah. Um, so you found your, you know, you sort of like found a way back home to that, that intuitive guidance, that intuitive knowing what has unfolded since then. <laughs> Everything. Everything. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's been one big wave and I've been surfing it. Yeah. It's been the most freedom I've ever experienced in my life. Mm. It's been a level of sovereignty that I thought I'd lo lost because I, I really did lose myself in the relationship. I mm. compromised to the point where I didn't recognize myself. And that's of no fault to Carmina. She didn't ask that of me. Yeah. You know, she, in fact, was the most empowering person who absolutely gave me a canvas that I could paint anything on. It just so happened I was coming out of a complex of wanting to be the nice guy and the good guy and giving so much. And yeah. So at this point, it feels like I've just completely taken my power back from all of the narrative that had me feel like I needed to sacrifice and be the martyr and all of that stuff. And um, yeah, that people pleaser is dead and it feels so good mm. because ultimately this is who I really am. It's a person who is actually committed to the same mission. So the contents of my life has not changed at all mm. but where i'm coming from about it not needing to be this martyr the savior and just really being clear about what it is that i want and not feeling like i need to be something i'm not you know mm. i am flawed i do have days where i think about multiple partners mm. <laughs> you know and i do have days where I'm judging everything around me, including myself. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, uh, so there's a few things and mm. I'm trying to be conscious of like how much I, how much we can dive into here. Cause there, there's a, a few things that I definitely want to get to. Um, but first I, you know, I think I just want to ask for the listeners out there, like what was the process of sort of consciously uncoupling that mm. relationship like, and, um, maybe just at a, at a high level, but I, you know, I think yeah. I, we would, we would miss out on something valuable if I didn't mm. ask this. Well, getting a couple's therapist was a huge, huge turning point because we got into a pattern with each other where the conversations were just really in survival and shame and blame. And when his presence was in the room, we got another way of interfacing with each other. And it was, it was like this refreshing perspective because he was reflecting back what he was hearing in a neutral way. He had zero agenda. Mm. We had agendas, you know, I think she's so committed, so devoted that she was in the relationship and looking for evidence to support that. Meanwhile, I was bent out of shape and mm. barely sane. And so I was just looking for a way to get sane. And I thought, Maybe it's the relationship. And so yeah. here's somebody who has zero dogs in the race and is able to see things for what they are and able to honor both of our perspectives. And we navigated through it relatively gracefully. We mm -hmm. definitely had a couple of hiccups here and there after sessions. We'd walk away and you know have a little something to say. 
but ultimately we did get back into grace with each other and for compassion to emerge and an understanding and a knowing. And it was all the difference in the world. I, mean, I called this therapist the other day and I got him up to speed about where we are and how we're texting each other, encouraging hmm. things again. And, you know, she's taken over camera ready. And somebody told me, somebody on the team shared that the last camera ready was sold out. And I was so happy to hear that. Yeah. You know, and I texted her and I said, I know the difference you're making in that room. And so we're back in that. And so it's just so good. It's so good. Cause I, I do want my friend back. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned, and I, I can't let this go by. You also mentioned, uh, thinking about multiple partners. Mm. Tell me, tell me a little bit about this, because I think this is something that is on a lot of people's minds. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just noticing my body Yeah, and I'm listening to it and I'm noticing it has attraction to multiple different people throughout the day. Mm. And so I don't know what to make of that quite yet. I'm definitely in yeah. exploration and <laughs> discovery. I've just never allowed myself that kind of freedom before. So so what you're saying is you're single and definitely ready to mingle. <laughs> Mindfully mingling. You, you, yeah, you're going to get some like DMs. Like, people are just going to slide into the, oh into the DM oh box there. Oh I can just tell it right now. I'm gonna get I up. mean, after five years of being in this relationship, <laughs> this is definitely a different reality. To I'm going to get a voice memo from you after this comes out being like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. What you do whoa whoa can't handle uh, so yeah i i don't know what it's gonna add up to i've heard a lot about this polyamorous lifestyle i'm gonna read some books about it i'm gonna explore in, in my own way and i just you know i know that we make a lot of stuff up mm. at some point somebody made up the institution of marriage mm-hmm. made up that we need to be committed to just one partner mm-hmm. it's made up and so i think it's time we question everything because mm-hmm. based on statistics it's a failed experiment. Mm. Almost 60%, right? Yeah, I don't know what the number is anymore, but it was like 51, 52% before. Yeah, with anything else, with anything else, if I'm sitting there as a businessman and I'm looking at that failure rate, I might be thinking it's not. Yeah, half half the time as it works. Yeah. Yeah, I think even Sex Panther had a better rate. Remember, that's an Anchorman. That's an Anchorman <laughs> reference for all, all people that are there. It's like a, what, what do you say, like 60% of the time? It works 100% of the time. So he had a 60% achievement rate. That's pretty, you know. That's yeah. hilarious. All I right. love a good Anchorman <laughs> reference. All right, moving forward. One of the things that I did really want to dive into is this concept of sort of like being a, a social leader or being a leader in some way and having the the that sort of pressure put on you mm-hmm. and the, the sort of pressure cooker that that can create in your in your personal life and your relationships and and how we start to sort of cope with those things so what do you see a lot of leaders social leaders especially or influencers or experts dealing with today that maybe they didn't have to deal with 50 years ago mm. Whew. wow where do we begin there's a lot i think that whenever we take on that kind of responsibility to put ourselves out in front. It's going to bring up everything. It's the ultimate mirror. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have a community of people reflecting back what their experience of us is. And that can take on a lot of different flavors. It can take on a lot of different <laughs> flavors. <laughs> some of them are a little bitter. Yeah. Some of them are spicy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, it brings up whether I'm worthy. Mm. I'm enough to be the person to, lead with this message. And the reality of it is that maybe we're not worthy. Mm. (laughs) Maybe we do need to do more research or be on the front lines of an issue more. But if not us, then who? Mm -hmm. And if not now, then when? This is kind of a cliched saying, but truly, if we all took on the lens that we're not quite there, we're not enough, nothing would move forward. So at some point, we just need to say, all right, I'm ready when I say I'm ready. And that's what we did with Camera Ready. I was feeling backed up about being this guy when at the time when we started Camera Ready, I was barely putting myself on camera in a vulnerable way. Mm -hmm. I was like, I need to take this workshop. (laughs) I need to teach. I need to be a participant. But Carmina, God bless her. She's the heart and soul of what we created. I'm the head. She's the heart. (laughs) Right? And so she said, no, we just need to get out with this, see what happens. And sure enough, it was, it was amazing what happened. 
And the miracles I've seen in that training room would not have happened if I had talked myself and us out of trying it out and seeing what happened. Mm. And so, yeah, it's really imperative that we just believe that if something is in our heart to do, it's not a coincidence. It's not a random thing. Mm -hmm. it's, it's in us because it's for us to execute on. That's a good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. So as you have, I think this ties into what we were talking about before, as you've come out of this space and, you know, now over the last year or so have started to, you know, build things back up and learn from the, you know, the, this, this you know, really challenging uh, sort of almost like tragic time that you were in. Mm -hmm. What have you started to do to, to tend to this part of yourself so that as you continue to be this leader, you are not necessarily ensuring that that path doesn't happen again, but you're safeguarding yourself. Cause mm -hmm. I can, again, I can see a lot of people like, Oh, I've been down that path before I've hit the rock bottom. You know, I've, I've, I've had the contraction in my life where everything started to fall apart mm -hmm. and I don't necessarily want that to happen again. What do I do? Mm -hmm. So what have you been doing? I've been non-negotiable about my self-care. Mm. So used to rationalize it, negotiate all the time. Yep. Now it's non-negotiable. I'm going to start the day with meditation. Like my life depends on it because it does. Mm -hmm. I realize that it's a slippery slope. It's so easy to get into, oh, but this needs to get done. This needs to get done. So non-negotiable about that meditation, yoga, uh, I picked up more rigorous exercise. Um, I've done boxing recently. Got a, got a trainer, I hear. I got a trainer. <laughs> I mean, that's an investment that I yep. never made in myself. But I feel like now I look at it like an expression of my self-love. Like I love myself enough to invest in this because I know it's going to make a difference. And ultimately, it's not about me. That's how I layer on still being this kind of you know, giver and <laughs> thinking about the output and how I will actually facilitate way more effectively because I've taken care of this vessel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Such a good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. What would you say to the people that are out there that are community leaders? You know, cause I think that one of the things that we talked about off camera and, and off, off air was this, this concept that, you know, leaders in communities, especially, especially like social leaders and, you know, influential leaders, people that are leading healing and transformation, um, there's a certain responsibility, a certain weight that comes along with that. Mm -hmm. What would you say to those types of people that are tuning into this? There's a different kind of leadership that's available mm. beyond needing to be this hero. There is being human. Mm -hmm. And I think people are looking for humans to not lead from some stage, but from the side, from shoulder to shoulder with them. You know, I often talk about not wanting to be a sage from the stage, but being a guide from the side. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that is way more sustainable. You're not going to get assassinated as easily. Because <laughs> really, when we look at it historically, if you really want to be that sage on the stage, I mean, we're talking on MLK Day. <laughs> I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah. And if you want that, we still have a very lively body of people that are out there that are very angry about certain people being messengers yep. and will do that. And so I think it's just time for everyone to humble themselves and to really enjoy the journey, enjoy every step, because honestly, every step is worth celebrating. Mm. I may not end up in the headlines, but man, the time that I've spent with people in the trenches of their life on these coaching calls or sitting over coffee with somebody that will never be acknowledged in the public those are the moments where I felt my humanity more. And what is life if not for these moments? Mm. You know, Matt Damon, I think, talked about it in Goodwill Hunting that life is a series of moments, mm. right? And it's like so much of what being a leader nowadays on social media consists of is fabricating moments and making it look really good on IG. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm true. sorry, but like, it's I mean, true. at the end of the day, you know, poke holes in that all day. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I guess people don't see the the hard moments. You know, nobody's mm -hmm. picking up their phone and turning on Instagram when they're in conflict mm -hmm. in their relationship or their business is in breakdown mm -hmm. or, you know, their their company's not doing well financially. No no one's really doing that. Mm -hmm. They're waiting for, you know, these 
the the moments where they can turn them into something, right? Yeah. They're like showing the perfect moments even while the house is on fire, right? Yeah. It's like social media is a, an interesting thing. Well, and that's the thing. It can be used to actually support in getting support. Mm-hmm. 100%. So like I, if I had the the mindfulness, the ability in the moments so I was being backed up to put my challenges online, there would have been a, a different relationship with what I perceived would mm-hmm. be the case in the way people thought about it. Because the minute I started sharing about it, it completely flipped what I thought people would have to say about it. Mm. Everybody was at the ready to support me. Yeah. I thought they would be judging and saying, I knew he was full of shit. Yeah. I knew he wasn't that guy. But in fact, they were like, thank you for opening up and giving me the opportunity to give back to you because you've been giving to me for years. Yeah. So I'm like, great. All right. This is what receiving feels like. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, uh, so I did this, this conference two, two or three years ago and I had Gary Vaynerchuk come out and speak and we had like 1500 people out and it was this huge, massive success. It was the first time I had done this conference. Mm. And the year after I had wanted to hire Simon Sinek or Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. And I was, and intuitively, this is the intuition. I was like, intuitively, I am not going to do this conference unless I can get one of those two speakers. Mm. And couldn't get either of them. Hmm. They're both booked, et cetera, et cetera. And so someone, someone on my team had sort of put forward someone else uh, to hire Grant Cardone. And every, every part of my intuition was like, don't do this, hmm. right? Like, don't, don't go forward with this. But I ignored it and I went forward with it anyway. And it was huge failure. You know, I, it just didn't, didn't work out. I had to cancel the whole conference. We refunded everybody's money. Mm. You know, I took this like 60 or $70,000 loss and it was this huge, uh, you know, huge punch to the ego because mm. just 12 months before I'd had this huge, massive success in conference. Mm. And 12 months later, it's like this massive, massive failure, mm. you know, financially everything. And, I remember I just put it out. I emailed the entire, my, like everyone in my tribe. I, I put it out on Instagram and I was like, look, this, this happened hmm. and I failed. And I'm sorry for the people that are disappointed in it. And da, da, da. And I was shocked at the amount of response that people gave back to me. Hmm. And I remember people's sentiments being almost exactly the same where it was like, hey, look, like you've done so much for me. Like, don't worry about it. Like one, one thing happens, like mm-hmm. it's, it's not really a big deal. Like, how can I help you? How can I serve you? Yep. And I think that is, that's the beauty of, of, you know, what I'm taking away from your message is like when we're struggling, it's okay to put it out there, mm-hmm. you know, that there's, there's strength. I think as Brene Brown says, is that you can't, you can't separate strength from vulnerability. You can't mm-hmm. separate courage from vulnerability. The mm-hmm. two are, are inextricably and inexorably linked mm-hmm. and there's nothing that you can do to separate them. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to be courageous, you also have to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is a huge part of your message, man. Mm-hmm. Like you have, you have exuded so much courage just in this interview and in your journey. And I thank you deeply mm-hmm. for, for all of this. Thank you. Um, I'm also curious as to what you have up and coming, you know, mm-hmm. it sounds like you have, um, you like, you know, like Phoenix rising right now, just like rebuilding and creating. And I can like, I get this like hunger coming from you, you know, this, like yeah. just this, that intensity. Well, after a year of being a breakdown, it's like, I'm making up for lost yeah. time I'm <laughs> back in the game. And so, yeah, the, uh, the experience of having felt like I don't know who to turn to mm. in a way that won't affect the mission. Yeah. Because if I've built a tribe of people who I've had as students at some point, I don't feel like I can go to them. And so, yeah, the thing that really inspired uh, this this whole thing, it's King Council that I'm creating, this mastermind for men who are taking it upon themselves to be the upholder of communities, mm. who sometimes feel like they can't let go of this hero thing to create a space for them, mm. for the Kings of our communities to have a place to sit with other Kings yeah. and really share vulnerably in such a way where we heal, we get clear about the things we can change and shift and support each other in a meaningful way. So I'm really excited about the King council. And then also having a show where I sit down with the most inspiring people in the world and hear about their failures and mm. how they got over them. And ultimately we're supported by them. 
Yeah. Because I really want people to get in their bones that failure is not something to avoid. So many people out there listening right now probably have something on their heart, a dream, a vision. And because of the prospect of failure are not going for it. Mm. And regret is worse than failure. And so it's in your heart for a reason. You're listening for this for a reason. <laughs> Go for it. If you fall on your face, you'll just end up on my show. Humble yeah. pie. <laughs> so good, man. So good. Well, I feel like that's a message that everyone could use right now. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, where can they subtly stalk you online? <laughs> <laughs> well, on Instagram, I'm at Caduce, which is Q-U-D-D-U-S. I always need to spell that out. It's such an unusual name. And um, Facebook, same. And I'm also going to be at uh, King Council, so the website. And it'll be a place where um, I'm going to feature really impressive, inspiring men as well. So if you want to stay in the loop with what I call the new man, mm. then that'll be a place for that too. Awesome. So for everyone that's out there, definitely go and check out Caduce's work. We'll have all the links uh, below in the on the show notes. And uh, don't forget to leave a rating and review. Don't forget to share this episode um, with someone that you know could really use it. I think that's part of the other piece of the message is that sometimes we know that people in our life are struggling. Mm. And uh, sometimes they just need a reminder that we are standing shoulder to shoulder with them, mm -hmm. you know, that we have their back. Yeah. Check on your strong friends today. Yeah. Boom. Mm -hmm. That's a really great point. Mm -hmm. um, so on that note, until next week, this is Connor Bean signing off. Mm -hmm.